So this morning I want to continue with the theme of the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. In fact, this is the uh, eighth talk in a series. So I'll do a little bit of review because there are a lot of people here for the first time. And although you may have, for all I know, uh, studied the Four Foundations before, but I I know some of you uh, probably not as much. So I'll try to give quite a bit of background. And in light of the the, uh, change in schedule for January, I I was um, earlier intending to have this be the last in the series, uh, have it be the last in the series on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And I'm thinking that I may continue in January because I, I won't have done justice to the last foundation. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thinking that I'll do a little bit less today and also continue, continue on in January. Um, I won't approximate uh, Joseph Goldstein's series on the Four Foundations, which was 47 talks, and which is available online if you want to hear that. But I will, uh, today, I'll continue talking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And so I want to uh, review, particularly for those uh, here for the first time, I want to review the, uh, is the light okay? Is that light? Not, Not distracting anyone. Okay. So, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness is the core teaching um, on mindfulness in this tradition. And probably it's the core, it's a teaching which is found in a 10-page discourse. And the material that's in the handout is is the material in the Fourth Foundation has actually four of those 10 pages. It's a very short text, and that text gives very, very uh, detailed instructions for how to be mindful. As I, as I often say, uh, the Buddha did not say, just say, be mindful, and then say, bye, report back. <laughs> he said, be mindful in these ways. In other words, it's actually very important to attend, to contemplate particular aspects of experience, and to focus attention uh, very specifically in the training to develop mindfulness. And mindfulness is this quality Uh, of being able to be present with experience in a direct way so that we are not caught in our interpretations and our thinking about experience, but that we can be directly with the experiences of the body, with the mind, with emotions, with various aspects of experience, and to, in particular, notice where we get um, reactive, where we get distracted. Uh, in our experience and to notice our own particular habits of mind. And so it's this quality of mindfulness which is the translation of the word sati and it could be probably better translated mind, heart, bodyfulness <laughs> because it's really not so much about mind. That was, that's, as I mentioned, is a Victorian era translation from the Pali language and it really has to do with being present to one's Uh, mental uh, goings-on to one's body, to one's emotions. And so that's this quality, the quality of attentiveness or presence, which is taken not just in Buddhist tradition, but in so many traditions, to be uh, a key to freedom. In other words, awareness is is a key to freedom. Or, you know, in in the Christian Bible, it says, know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There a, there's, can be a quality of awareness there. 
you know, or at least in some interpretations of that. And so this is very basic quality of being attentive in the present moment of whatever is happening and doing so in a non-judgmental, non-reactive, generally warm-hearted way is taken to have tremendous power to free ourselves and to be a key for acting with more open heart and with skill in the world. Very simple quality. And so what we did earlier, of course, we could think of as a training that coming, as most of us do, from a background where we are often reactive, we are often distracted, basically we need training. And our meditations are really training periods. And we do the training in these training periods where we sit in a protected environment and uh, work with the breath. And the, the aim of that is not that awareness of the breath is some great thing to, to master, right? It's training. It's training because it's tra- we need, like any training situation, we need to keep it simple. We need to keep it very simple so we can develop this capacity and then gradually bring it out into more and more complex situations. So we train individually with mindfulness. We train first with something very simple for most of us, not, not for everyone, uh, like the breath. For people with compromised breathing, the breath is not a simple object. And for those, we would use other objects, maybe like body sensations. We try to find a way to uh, develop the awareness. And we train then with uh, a simple situation, simple object like the breath, We develop, as I was mentioning at the beginning, we develop more settledness of mind, more ability to concentrate, more ability not to be distracted. And then gradually in this, again, protected environment, we bring it out to look at all the different parts of experience, uh, the body, thoughts, emotions, and so forth. And then when that has uh, been developed to some extent, then we can bring out our mindfulness into various activities where things are more complex, fast-moving. We have the challenging presence of other people, <laughs> you know, to be there with their own minds. You know, one mind is hard enough, you know. I remember when I was, uh, uh, I lived in Germany for a year, and uh, I often visited a friend and stayed, uh, you know, would stay sometimes with uh, her parents, and um, I was at that time very much of an activist and wanting to help uh, change the world, still very much there, um, but that was m- more like a primary identity, and, and I remember she said, you know, you want to change the world. It's hard enough to live with my husband. <laughs> you know, you're so ambitious. <laughs> and, um, and so, um, yeah, so there's a reality to that. But, but we do aspire to train our minds and then gradually bring out this quality of mindfulness. And it's really connected with other qualities, as we'll see today further, connected with wisdom, with the heart, with the open heart, with uh, uh, skillful action, ability to be responsive. All these different qualities are ones that we uh, actually bring in. And, and in that sense, the training um, has many parts. Mindfulness is one part. And really, uh, 
you know, takes, uh, takes time and energy. You know, this what we're really inviting is a way of living with awareness, with presence, with an open heart, with wisdom, and bringing that into all of our life situations, all of our relationships, bringing it into situations where there are ants, where there are uh, landlords with perhaps less than good intentions. Um, uh, that, that was to refer to our question period for anyone listening later. <laughs> but but uh, we bring it into these complex situations, and that's really our practice. So here we do this, uh, we, we, we cultivate the qualities that are foundational. And so um, in the four foundations of mindfulness, there are these four areas where we cultivate uh, mindfulness or, or caring and wise attention. The first is mindfulness of the body, and this is usually where we start. Mindfulness of breath would be part of that. Mindfulness of the body. And I've, uh, I've often mentioned in this group that mindfulness of the body is very, very central for our culture. Very mental culture, digital culture, virtual culture more and more, that we are increasingly disconnected from our bodies, from the earth, and so forth. And that mindfulness of the body is a beautiful practice. It's a practice we can do when we're walking, when we are, not just when we're meditating uh, in a protected environment, but we can bring that mindfulness of the body out into um, walking, into eating, being with a sunset, being with our senses in different ways. And there are these different ways to train mindfulness of the body, the first foundation, to particularly train it with mindfulness of breathing, to train it with developing mindfulness in different activities, mindfulness in washing dishes, mindfulness in uh, preparing food, um, even can, you know, I, I use mindfulness of the body as a very significant tool in bringing mindfulness into speech and communication, to being with others. Can I keep uh, grounded in my own body when I'm with others, rather than just as we often are, just be out there, right? Someone's talking, you just go totally out there. So it's a more of a tendency to react. When we actually can stay in our bodies and stay present when we're with others, we can be more mindful of our own reactions and not so immediately just react and go here, go there. And so, again, uh, we went into a lot of depth on this earlier. And I should say, for those here for the first time, that all of the previous seven talks are available on the dharmaseed.org website. And you can just download them and, or listen to them on the web. So all of the previous talks where there was a more uh, detailed exploration of mindfulness of the body, it's all, all there. The second foundation is, is an interesting and subtle one. And this is similar to what we did in the guided meditation. This is mindfulness of the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is uh, kind of a, a sleeper candidate for a mindfulness category, I, th I sometimes think, because it's not one which might come immediately to mind. We might say, OK, mindfulness of the body, yes. Mindfulness of thoughts, yes, obvious. Mindfulness of emotions, yes, obvious. Mindfulness of the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, hmm. Why do that? And the reason is, and this is very key to looking to the sources of when we get reactive. And of course, in the teachings of the Buddha, looking at how we get reactive and either 
grab hold of something or push away something, whether that something is a person, a comment, or part of ourselves, that reactivity is taken to be the source of suffering. And ultimately, in terms, it's also ultimately the source, we might say, of interpersonal conflict, of conflict in someone's mind. It would be the source, uh, often the source of violence, often the source, you know, when we trace back the roots of conflict and violence, we will trace it back to reactivity in people's minds. There are other things as well, but that reactivity is there. And for different sources of suffering, we want to see that reactivity. And the teaching on feeling tone is particularly interesting and subtle because it's saying here are the first roots of where the mind goes automatic and goes reactive. That is, when something is there that we really like, if we're not attentive, and you may have noticed this yesterday, if you had a Christmas dinner and particularly had uh, good food, good dessert, did you notice the mind wanting more? A few heads nod. <laughs> a few heads did not nod, but no doubt experienced it. <laughs> you know, that we, we, uh, the teaching is we find something pleasant and we tend, if we're not attentive, to grab hold. Pleasant experiences, pleasant ideas, pleasant emotions, all the range of experiences. And Similarly, and sometimes easier to see, is that when there's something unpleasant, we push it away. We react. Most obvious, if you're meditating, you felt your body uncomfortable, you would tend to push it away, right? Tend to contract. This is, you know, this is why, um, because that occurs, one of, the, one of the most fundamental areas of application of mindfulness is in the medical field. Because they can teach people not to react to pain so much not to contract around it, but to relax, or to relax, you know, maybe around uh, all sorts of challenging uh, processes. So, again, can be applied in psychotherapy, mindfulness being very widely applied. And so we attend to the feeling tone, uh, and then we also track what happens. So, uh, am I tending to react? Am I tending to push away, to grab hold? The third foundation is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, and here, we are invited to track, okay, what kind of thoughts are going through? And we might have a, a list. We might say, okay, there is my planning thought. There is my fantasizing thought. There is my imagination. There is my coming back to financial discussion number two. There is my coming back to relationship issue number 14, <laughs> you know, and so forth. And I will just come back over and over. And when we have mindfulness, we start noticing that we start also noticing the emotions that might be there. We can be with sadness, we can be with anger, and we stay with it. So we, ha- we develop the capacity to be with the experience and to increasingly know what the experience is. So the first three foundations I think of as developing the capacity to be with these three areas of experience or these three constituents of experience. Um, The body, various aspects of the body, feeling tone, and thoughts and emotions. The fourth foundation moves in a a more, towards more complexity and more subtlety. The fourth foundation is to start to see what I like to think of as patterns or processes of experience. You know, and if you look at that, if you look at that uh, table, 
the different practices. You can see all this charted out in the handout that I gave, which was prepared by uh, Sally Armstrong. And what the fourth foundation does, and it could be done in a variety of ways, the fourth foundation offers us certain frameworks through which we look at experience. Could be other frameworks. These are the ones that are chosen. We look at the patterns and processes of experience. So last time, for example, we looked particularly at the uh, teaching, which is really the fundamental teaching given by the Buddha. Um, most of you know this, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And we looked at how this could be a framework that guides our experience. And this would be the way that we practice with the Fourth Foundation of Mindfulness. So the, the Four Noble Truths is a teaching that says, uh, really, it really actually follows what was the uh, basic model for medical diagnosis and prescription at, the, at that time in India. It was basically, and it's very common sense, it's saying, what's the problem? What's the root of the problem? What's the solution? And how do we get there? That's, that's, that's the basis for the Four Noble Truths. So I've actually had friends in um, uh, Thailand and I think also in Burma and in the Philippines who've applied this model to social change. You know, they bring that model into communities and use that as a guide to social change. What's the problem? What's the root of the problem? What's the response or the solution? And what's the way to get there? Right? It's a very, very simple design for any kind of transformation. And, and so the first noble truth uh, of suffering, remember we're distinguishing suffering from pain. That's a very important point. That pain is the presence of the unpleasant and suffering is the reactivity. It's that compulsive pushing away or grabbing hold. You know, it's the way that uh, you can have a cold and it can be unpleasant and you can possibly be very calm. We can be very calm, peaceful with a cold, right? That's, we would call that pain. And what turns it into suffering? When I start being grumpy, complaining, start just saying, oh, poor me, or I blame the person who I got the cold from, or whatever, whatever it might be. That we call suffering, <laughs> you know? And I've sometimes mentioned I was visiting Kentucky and uh, one of the persons who I was working with said she worked at a hospital and there was a woman who was in hospice who was a double amputee. At the foot of her bed, she had the sign up that said, pain is a given, suffering is optional. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Um, and that's sort of a dramatic way to express this core teaching. And so what we're looking for is the suffering. Of course, the unpleasant very easily goes to the suffering. That's what we were looking at earlier. But it doesn't necessarily. And the whole teaching and is in part about saying, can I be with the unpleasant and watch my mind and my reactions enough so that I don't suffer? That's right at the core of things. And so the first truth of the Four Noble Truths is that there is suffering. And the mindfulness instruction would be, can I explore it? Can I be mindful? Can I be with my cold and notice when I'm tending to be reactive? Can I really track that, basically? Can I track when my mind says, 
how long is this going to last? Oh, I'm just, I'm just miserable. And it's my, my roommate's fault. <laughs> right, or whatever, wherever we go with that. And uh, I track that. I track my mind creating that suffering. The second noble truth is to see what are the roots of the suffering. And here, actually, it's almost uh, by, by the way we define suffering, we have a sense of the root. The root of the suffering is that reactivity. You know, it's that tendency to want or not want and so forth. And so here, the root of the reactivity in the case of the cold would be I'm, to I'm really attached to not having a cold. If I'm going to suffer, it's because I'm pushing away the condition of having a cold. Now, that's independent of, of doing what one can to get better. That's a different point. You know, this is more what one, you know, one acts as skillfully as possible. And then what do you do with what's there? That's where mindfulness and wisdom come in, right? So with the cold, the suffering would be, I'm, you know, at a certain point, I'm attached to it being different than it is now which is going to cause suffering, right? And so the third uh, noble truth is that it's possible to be without suffering. In other words, to have that, that our it's really that our basic nature is that of clarity, wisdom, and peacefulness. And that that's actually possible with any condition. Of course, to be with difficult conditions in that way takes a lot of training for most of us. And then the fourth noble truth is how do you get there? How do you get to this difficult, through this difficult uh, uh, suffering, let's say? How do, how do I, in this case of the cold, how do I uh, stop the suffering? And well, we might just, we might talk to ourselves and say, look, Donald, you have a cold. It's not the worst thing in the world. You know, you're suffering because in relationship to it, are you attached to not having a cold? Yes. Is there a way that you can just accept what is? No. <laughs> okay, well, uh, would you be willing to try? Okay. <laughs> you know? And so we go back and we, we maybe we say, okay, let me just, let me just, okay, it's not so bad, I'm not working. <laughs> you know, and so forth. So we can talk to ourselves, talk to friends, and so forth. So uh, that would be a way to apply this. That would be... If we were watching all of those uh, four noble truths in the situation with the cold, that would be doing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. That would be tracking, okay, when is there suffering? Okay, can I feel the roots of it in some kind of wanting this and holding tightly to some scenario? Can I notice that? Can I let go? And what helps me to let go? That would be, in meditation, it would be, could be something like, I'm sitting, I notice my shoulder, uh, is not feeling comfortable, there's some pain there. I start contracting and reacting. I notice that. And then I say, oh, time to practice the four foundations, the fourth foundation of mindfulness with the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> okay, okay, to the rescue, <laughs> right? And then I just say, okay, what's the first truth? The truth is, the first noble truth is that I am suffering. Okay, let me study what it's like to contract. This is not huge suffering, but it is a kind of mild suffering. I'm contracting around, I'm contracting around my um, sensations in my shoulder. Okay, let me just notice what that's like. Let me notice how I do that, right? Let me study it. Let me, let me notice that. And then, then I notice, okay, then I can ask, okay, the second noble truth. Is there a way that I uh, am attached to something or that I'm 
grabbing hold of something. And I could say, if I reflect some, so you see that this foundation of mindfulness involves some reflection. It's not just being present, but it brings in thought, reflection, brings in the faculty of wisdom, and also responsiveness. The earlier foundations of mindfulness were more or less just being receptively present with whatever's there. Here we're bringing in responsiveness, wisdom, and acting skillfully. And so here I actually uh, say, is there something I'm attached to? And I would say, I think I'm attached to my shoulder feeling differently, (laughs) right? Or I don't want this to be happening. And I'm attached to it not happening. And then what do I do? I notice that and let me feel what that's like. And then the third noble truth would be, can I just be with this without, uh, without, the, uh, without that reactivity? Can I just, can I just do that? And I, uh, can I be present and just say, this is how it is. I'll be with it. Let me let it go. And I just say, let me just relax. The sensations aren't the most fun. Let me just relax with it. That's what I do. And then the fourth foundation would be the different tools that help me to do that skillfully. It might be to reflect. It might be to reflect, uh, you know, uh, it's possible to be with this. This isn't going to kill me, being with these sensations. And I really want to learn about the four noble truths, don't I? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay, well, it'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Okay, you willing to do it just this one time? Okay. Right, so you, I don't know, you talk to yourself, you... I would think you're neuroses. <laughs> Whatever. And um, so that, that, that would be how we apply it, right? And so you can see that here there is that responsiveness. There is bringing in wisdom. There is skillful response. So this is starting to bring in the, all these dimensions of complexity that we didn't have when we're simply with the breath, right? You can see that, starting to move towards the complexity of ordinary experience. And uh, what the fourth foundation of mindfulness gives us is actually five different frameworks. And they're they're outlined on the the handout. It gives us the framework of uh, the hindrances, which are the forces which make mindfulness hard. And um, I was going to go, I don't know if I'm going to have time, I was going to go into detail on that. And I think what I'll do here is I'll go over this and maybe then open it up some for discussion. I was going to go over two of them today in detail, but I think I'm going to do that next time. But I'll just explain this because it's, it's a complicated foundation, but when you actually look at it carefully, it's actually not so complicated. What we have are these five frameworks. The first is uh, seeing that which makes mindfulness difficult. And this, this is understood as some kind of strong desire, kind of a strong compulsive desire on the one hand, or a strong compulsive aversion on the other. And uh, the third is sleepiness. The fourth is restlessness. The fifth is doubt. So these are what make, make um, mindfulness hard. And then as we go further in this, we, we start. What, what we have here is actually a full training that we would go through to uh, develop more responsiveness and, and wisdom. And these teachings might seem a little arbitrary, but they're actually a teaching that takes us by using these frameworks in a way similar to what we just did with the Four Noble Truths, which was the last one. It takes us through a training in which we first look at what makes mindfulness difficult. 
you know, because if there is strong desire or aversion in the mind, it's very hard to be mindful, right? If I'm angry, if I'm upset, if all I'm thinking about is lunch, very hard to be mindful. And yet, we can be mindful of all those, uh, all those uh, states of mind. The beautiful thing about mindfulness is that nothing that we could possibly experience is outside of practice. That's what's beautiful, actually beautiful here. You're feeling really distracted, be mindful of it. You're feeling really angry, reactive, be mindful of it. Nothing is outside the practice. We always, mindfulness in other words, is always appropriate. And so the first is, the first is a, a framework of these uh, difficult energies. Um, the second and third are looking at different ways that we can look at experience uh, more carefully. And the fourth is developing the factors that open up the mind to beautiful states. And the fifth is the Four Noble Truths, which actually opens us up to freedom. So there's actually a sequence here where we move uh, in training, based on the first three foundations, we move in training, starting with what distracts us, what makes it hard to pay attention. We work through that, then we look carefully at experience, and then we develop uh, beautiful qualities like concentration, equanimity, joy, uh, interest, inquiry, mindfulness, and so forth. So what we have here in the fourth foundation, which I think I'm going to go into more detail in in successive weeks, is a full training that goes all the way to developing freedom. And also very, very applicable in our in our practice and in our daily lives. So we can, we can, what this is really doing is it's taking the frameworks, not as doctrine, but of ways of actually seeing with the eyes of, uh, we might say the eyes of the Dhamma or the eyes of the Dharma, or seeing, using these as very simple frameworks that let us see the world, we might say, with spiritual eyes. That's one way to say it. I can look, you know, if I, can you imagine going to a party and seeing everything through the framework of the Four Noble Truths? Okay. Is there suffering? Okay. Maybe not. Is there, but if there is, we could see it with that model. Or we might look at the, we could use, we go to a party and look, is there joy? We can see everything through these frameworks. And, that, and what this is really doing, it's helping us to um, approach every experience as part of a learning process. That's what it's doing. And the starting point is this, is this mindfulness practice. Uh, starting mindfulness of the breath, and we start there, and everything follows if we stay with the process. So I think I will um, stop here. I did a l- I, partly because of the m- being the morning after Christmas. I think I did a little bit less than I intended in terms of going into a lot of content. But I wanted to do this and leave more time for, for discussion about how we may have applied this in our experience and how we might apply it further. So let me stop here. Let's just take a moment to pause for a minute or two.
So any any questions, reflections, comments? Of any kind, please. My question is about the <coughs> practical aspects of, of this. Yeah. Um, for instance, I am a person who typically doesn't like speaking in public. Yeah. And so if I were to practice mindfulness of my aversion to speaking in public, I would never be able to an- ask you the question. Yeah. So um, on the other hand, I don't want to sort of go around my aversion and not notice it and just immediately start asking you a question because that's kind of the same as reactivity or yeah. grasping the pleasant. Yeah. So I'm curious how one works with the mindfulness of what it is that we don't like or a hindrance yeah. and, and how we notice what is pleasant and awakening and how long we should sort of spend in one or yeah. the other, or to just notice what arises as it arises and yeah. let it come and go. Yeah, and, and your name is? Abby. Uh, Abby's question is about uh, applying, uh, I think, uh, mindfulness generally, and possibly especially the fourth foundation, uh, to a practical situation such as um, having some uh, aversion to public speaking or ha- having some challenges in speaking publicly, such as in asking the question, <laughs> and, and how, to, how to approach that. And might uh, too much mindfulness of that aversion lead to paralysis? Is that a way of saying it? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And it's also, I notice it's not the way that it stays. In other words, the hindrances, I don't, it hasn't been my experience that hindrances totally go away before you yeah. have any insight at all. Yeah. It, however small it is, it's not, I mean, I feel like it's kind of an ongoing process of noticing when hindrances arise. Yeah. Yeah, so, so also reflecting on the fact that um, aversion or other hindrances don't immediately go away, but how to, so it's really how to use mindfulness in a skillful response here. So, um, so it's an interesting example, and I, I think it might, you know, it might, um, uh, it might differ for different people who had, who had a similar experience. Um, yeah, so it's, um, I, think, I think at some point it would be valuable to, you know, it's, it's valuable to be with the aversion and just to see what that's like. You know, I, so there's probably a full response to this would probably have a few different pieces, you know, not, not just one. Um, it probably would be uh, helpful just to, just to know what's there you know, and to be with it. And it, it probably is more than aversion. There's, that we probably would feel anxiety, fear. We could notice the mind. If we stay with it, we could notice the mind perhaps um, uh, contemplating scenarios in which there was something negative that happened, right? Could, might be, you know, I'm imagining someone like, um, and there may, there may be also, um, it's good just to see what's there, you know, like for myself, I know, uh, coming more into a role as a public speaker, I was basically a pretty shy person, um, more introverted, a lot of meditators are, <laughs> and, um, 
I remember the first time I really ever gave a pu major public talk. Uh, you know, it was like in a, it wasn't a big gathering, like 20 people. And luckily, I was able to sit on a chair behind a desk because my knees were literally <laughs> going back and forth like that. It was pretty interesting. And, um, and so if I would look at my mind, I probably would notice there'd probably be some memories of past experiences that where things, something happened. And, and that's, probably, that's probably valuable to be, to be mindful. Um, and then if I was, you know, as I, I work with people who are um, coming into a teaching role, so I actually a lot uh, do work with people who have to deal with this issue in a very practical way. And so what I would probably do would I would be to, um, I, I probably, I think this is where your, your observations come in. I probably would not focus so much on mindfulness of the uh, aversion, but I would probably focus a little bit more on um, uh, being in touch with positive qualities, like being with the body, being with, uh, you know, strengthening the confidence, and then just going into situations which are a little bit of a stretch, but not too much of a stretch. And that, that's probably what the, you know, in terms of being skillful, that would probably be my approach. And at a certain point, it could make sense to be with the aversion and to really, I think it's helpful to know some of where it's coming from, whether it's coming from past experiences or whether it's anxiety or, you know, whether it's, whether there's a comment, you know, like you're, you know, um, you know, maybe from some teacher or from a parent, like you're just hopeless as a public speaker. You know, it could be that. And, and that's valuable to know if there is, because sometimes you can focus on it and work through it. But uh, generally speaking, I would probably more focus on the positive qualities, get those strong, and give a, uh, uh, some, some ways of growing that would be likely to be successful. So, okay, you're welcome. Other, other questions about anything related to the talk or anything brought up? Uh, Madison, please, and then Barbara. Um, well, this is the biggest thing that pops up, even though it may not be major, but it's happened about four times you were talking about overeating yeah. uh, during this period. And I have a clear message that says, you don't need to eat this, or this is too many, or one yeah. was good and three is not needed. And then I override those messages, go into regret, get into a blame cycle, and then kind of lift it and say, okay, tomorrow's a new day, you'll exercise more or eat less or something. But that overriding of the message, I think I really have a keen awareness of mm -hmm. what I need and don't need, mm -hmm. um, especially around food, mm -hmm. and I override the message. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no, the pause button is missing. Right. And I, w I would love your yeah. comments. On so, so it's a question about noticing a tendency that uh, may have been evident recently, since we're at holiday time, of um, overeating and particularly being quite clear about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, but then uh, overriding that inner wisdom. And so how to work with that. Does anyone relate to that? Okay. So, so, so you may have some, also some response. So... Um, I think the, you know, again, probably a few different ways to, to work with it. Um, I would say 
continually to, continuing to be mindful is very helpful. Just noticing. Uh, uh, can, reflecting sometimes after the fact can be helpful. Probably, though, what is uh, similar to response to Abby, what I would probably counsel is just making a commitment not to try to deal with the whole issue once and for all, or, you know, just, uh, but, but to actually take one time and then really commit to not overriding it. You know, just, just try it, you know, see if you can do that once or <laughs> twice. Not to, not to, in other words, set a, um, in, this, in both of these, this is where intention comes in very strongly. And so I would probably say, try to find a situation and maybe, I don't know, maybe it'd be, don't make it within your reach, so to speak. So it'd be, so you don't, maybe you, you're at a meal and you um, get that message ten times, okay? So commit to two times uh, really following your own inner guidance and forget about the other eight. <laughs> Something like that. So again, we have to be kind of incremental in the learning process and set up, and don't, you know, not to set up something that's too hard, but, but at times it's important just to have that strong will and that strong intention. That's, that'd be my first response. And continue to be mindful and you know, do things which would be supportive, like ask for support from others, you know, come on Wednesday morning and raise a question about it during the group, that sort of thing. So publicizing it can can actually be helpful for for both. Yeah, uh, Barbara, please. Um, it has to do with physical pain while sitting. Yeah. And being mindful of it, and oh, just knee really hurts, and you know what does it feel like, and is it oh, try to just breathe with it, and. So there's the actual pain. And then I keep thinking, but you're not supposed to move. You're not supposed to move. And I get caught up with getting pissed that if I'm supposed to just sit with it, it feels like I'm just shooting the second arrow by not moving it. And then I'm just pissed that I'm trying to work through it and thinking, well, all I have to do is move, but then I feel, no, I'm supposed to deal with it, and I just keep going around and around just in circles over that. So right. help so, me jump out of that. Okay, so a question is about working with uh, unpleasant sensations in the body, in this case in, the, in the knee, and how to work with it and observing that um, uh, she has different kinds of reactions, some of them uh, are in thinking that it's silly just to keep still. Isn't this just causing problems? Why shouldn't I just move? Okay, so it's actually the response is going to be similar. The core teaching here is going to be a teaching about, you know, here we would apply the fourth foundation. We would apply the four, the four, the fourth, uh, the four noble truths. Okay, we can definitely use that. And again, I think from a practical point of view, we want to really um, see the situation as, um, as workable 
and not being too much. That's really was the essence of my responses to Abby and Madison. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, that um, when we're sitting with the unpleasant in the body, I think first of all, we want to make the determination that we're not damaging the body. It's not valuable to sit in meditation and do things which actually damage the body. We generally have a sense of that. The general guideline we use for meditation is if it's hurting 20 minutes or 30 minutes after we finish sitting, after we finish sitting, you know, this is more in retreats when we're sitting a lot, but basically if, if there's pain there sometime afterwards, then that's a warning sign. And, but we probably, we often know, you know, like the example of the shoulder pain, for example, if we don't have an injury there, most likely that's just pain that comes and goes, right? And it may be the case with your knee, I don't know. But we, first of all, we don't want to do damage. We don't want to do further damage. If you ascertain, if you decide, if your wisdom tells you that, you, that this is not causing damage, then you can uh, actually uh, be present with the unpleasant and just watch what happens. And this, this is a very valuable training. And it's, um, it's, it it's, can be very valuable just to be there. Um, and there is a question of how long we stay with it, and I'll get, come to that in a moment. But it, in general, it's very valuable not just to flee the first moment there's an unpleasant sensation. Then we're never going to learn anything, right? And a tremendous amount can be learned by being with the unpleasant and seeing what the mind does. In other words, being with the unpleasant. And then, first of all, can I be with the unpleasant and notice when is, the, when is pain turning into suffering? How is suffering being generated with my knee? as opposed to simply being with the pain or the unpleasant. Watching that, I have learned so much about reactivity, just being with unpleasant sensations in the knee or the back, you know. And um, so you can, uh, can, do, can do that, and then you can work with the four truths, you know, you can, four noble truths. You can say, can I just be with this? Can I first of all notice how there is suffering? I'm tightening, I'm clenching, my mind is going through scenarios, I'm angry, and so forth. You know, I can note that that it, we could say is a form of mild or moderate suffering, right? And, I, and the dynamics that are in, what's interesting about suffering is that dynamics are no different for that example than for gross suffering, for more extreme suffering. The dynamics are the same, and so you can study it, and that's beautiful. You can study it, you can be with it. What's it like? What does it feel like to suffer? We want to study that, actually. It's very important. And can I be with that? And then, is there a way that I'm, uh, you know, grasping or pushing away? Is, is there something in the mind? Like, yes, I, I don't like this. I don't want this. This shouldn't be here. You know, there are different rationales for why it shouldn't be there, etc. And then, can I just relax and be with the unpleasant? And can I do that? It's not easy, but um, we can learn to do that. We can learn to be with the unpleasant. Sometimes when the concentration is greater, actually the unpleasant is pleasant. It's quite interesting. When the concentration gets to a certain level, it's just really strong sensations. And when the mind is quiet, it's actually, <clears throat> it actually can, can have pleasurable aspects. It's, pleasure turns into pain, and pain turns into pleasure to a certain 
level of awareness. It's quite interesting. <coughs> and then you can, uh, and then you can notice. Well, what helps me to stay with it? And you can remember our discussion. Now, uh, that that's a general guidance. And so then there's just the last piece is, when is it too much? I would say it's very good to do that for some time, but you want to be careful about making a complete ordeal of it. And so I would say, if, if, as long as you can stay with it, it's good to stretch yourself. Right? And again, you're, you know you're not doing damage. I would stay with it as long as you can. At a certain point, when it's turning into this ordeal, and it's just my will, and it's just like, like that, then maybe it's good to pull back. But I would tend to err on the side of doing a little longer. So you do it even though you know you can relieve it for training. It's like a lab. Yeah, it's like a lab, yeah. Because you're training, it's like you're training to really study. You know, it's like we're, in a sense, we're taking on, um, in a sense, unnecessary pain for the sake of training, which is, That's what I would yeah, which is common in a lot of, I mean, you know, what do they say in sports? No pain, no gain. <laughs> right, it's quite similar. You think of other trainings. There's a certain way that you take on a certain almost unnecessary pain in order to stretch oneself yes. for the purposes of learning. That's the, that's the little nugget I needed to hear. Okay, Thank great. You. Great, you're very welcome. Yeah. And there can be tremendous learning there. It's really, you know, it's very, very interesting. It can come back. So, great. So, I think we're <coughs> at our normal ending time, and I want to uh, thank you very much for your attention. I will continue with this uh, cycle of teachings. I think I'll, uh, I'll let Heather know what we've been doing for next week, and then I will also, I think I will continue